0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the CSPI podcast. I'm here today with uh, David Bernstein. He is a law professor at uh, George Mason University. Um, Do you have any other uh, titles or or positions, David?
1: I am the executive
0: director of the Liberty and Law Center uh,
1: at the Scalia Law School, which is the official name of the law school now at George Mason, and that's about it.
0: Uh huh. Okay, great. And he is the author of a new book called "Classified: The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America," which we're going to talk about. He's also written a book uh, called "You Can't uh, You Can't Say You Can't Say That" about uh, civil rights law and free speech. And so, this is, these are topics I've always been interested in. Um, so, look forward to uh, to talking. Uh, how did you um, How did you uh, get the idea of writing this book on racial classification? Because it's a pretty abstract topic.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in my some of my prior research, uh, including for the You Can't Say That book uh, and some of my other academic work, I came across the issue of racial classification. There's also a bunch of law professors who have written books about uh, how classification was done historically and so forth. Uh, it was a big issue in Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, whether someone who was 7th, 8th white could be segregated and classified as African-American. It occurred to me, I don't I can't pinpoint the moment, but it occurred to me that we still engage in uh, these classifications. And as the country gets ever more diverse and there's ever more marriage uh, among different ethnic groups, uh, the categories get ever more uh, arbitrary and uh, sort of ridiculous. And I started looking into it just uh, to see what would come of it. And I discovered that the classifications we have came about in a very haphazard and kind of arbitrary manner, which is not... Itself surprising, but just how uh, how poorly defined the categories are, and just how little thought went into them, was actually a little bit surprising.
0: Yeah, so um, you know we have some listeners who are not Americans, and even Americans probably don't know the story. Although Americans are used to filling out forms, and then they know that when you fill out a form for you're taking a test in school or you're applying for a job, uh, it has a race question, it has an ethnicity question. So, uh, what are the racial categories um, in America? Um, and uh, you know how, how did we how did we get here in a nutshell?
1: Okay, so let's start off with the fact that I think most Americans, maybe including me, before I really started researching it, think that racial classification is purely a matter of self-identification. So you get a form whether it's to apply to college or fill out a, or to apply for a mortgage or to ask for a green card or a whole bunch of other things that we do in American life, and you're asked to click off what your race or race ethnicity is, and they don't usually give you much in the way of definitions, so you just sort of check the box you feel most fits you, and what we don't realize is that these defini- these categories come from the federal government, and they do actually have official definitions, even if they're not always expressed. So we have African American slash black, uh, we have uh, Native American or American Indian, we have Hispanic Latino, white Asian American and Pacific Islander slash native Hawaiian. And then separately you're asked whether you are of Hispanic ethnicity or not.
0: Yeah. So you can be Hispanic ethnicity and you can be any race. You can be black, white, uh, Asian, you said it's it's uh, not self. It depends on the circumstance, doesn't it? Because you have court cases in the book where somebody will be trying to get a um, some kind of small business uh, loan, Um, but then like when you apply to college and you check a box, there's no verification there, is there? No, I
1: mean, so we're in kind of a weird situation where there are official, legally binding definitions that institutions are supposed to use, but. The institutions themselves rarely provide those definitions to people who are filling out the forms, and thus uh, they obviously can't say that you committed any kind of fraud or anything if you filled out, because they don't tell you what the definition is. So uh, in practice... Uh, in fact people can usually identify however they want but there are occasions as you discussed there are cases in the book where the government does come back and say wait a second your name is you know John Smith but you filled out that you're Hispanic that doesn't sound very Hispanic to us could you tell us what makes you consider yourself Hispanic and John Smith may say for example well my grandfather was born in Cuba and uh, came to the United States and then the uh, agency in question has to adjudicate uh, whether you are, in fact, Hispanic and therefore eligible for affirmative action preferences or not.
0: Yeah, so so government, I mean, before the civil rights era, um, you know, the, the federal government, how did how did it think about race, and, and how, how did that change, say, before the mid-1960s and after? So we
1: have to remember that uh, for the most part, the population of the United States was categorized either as white or black. That was like 99% of the population. What we now refer to as Hispanic or Latinos as an ethnicity, they were generally considered white unless they were obviously uh, black or, or otherwise. So we had blacks and whites, and then we had a very small group of Asians who aren't usually classified specifically as Asian, but were classified as either Japanese, Chinese, or Filipino American, or occasionally something else, but those were the three big groups. There were Native Americans or American Indians, but they were considered, you know, a, a sort of a separate uh, category of themselves because most of them, uh, who self-identified as Indians at that time, lived on reservations and they were sort of autonomous. And uh, there was, of course, no Native Ameri- no Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander category. So basically, for the most part, we had uh, whites and you know, Negroes in the terminology of the day, or later Blacks, uh, and, uh, and we had a couple
0: of small Asian groups and maybe others.
1: But for the most part, you were either white or Black. That's what it came down to.
0: Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, and what would the federal government, I mean, what, in the state level, they had Jim Crow segregation. The, uh, the federal government had segregation in a, in a few, like the military Right. Um, so, some other things. Um, but for the most part, it was basically the government was just sort of like a, a federal, like a, a Hispanic person or a Chinese person versus a white person. Most of the time dealing with the federal government, it wouldn't be too different. Right. I mean, the, the government didn't really have much concern with people's race other than black, white segregation.
1: Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. I don't know if the federal government ever segregated uh, Asian Americans away in in employment and so forth. I don't think so. Uh, Some states, there was actually disputes in the Jim Crow South, whether uh, the uh, Chinese immigrants who came to the South or a few thousand of them should be sent to so-called colored schools or to the white schools that really depended on the state and the jurisdiction. But for the most part, uh, it was in fact uh, white versus black. Mexicans were occasionally mistreated at the local level and treated separately, but for federal purposes, uh, they were white. And indeed, when the United States signed a treaty with Mexico ceding all that territory in the Southwest, uh, the rights of Mexicans were guaranteed uh, uh, to be full American citizens, unlike, say, black Americans. So what really changed is that for most of American history, it was advantageous to be considered white. So if Mexicans or uh, any other group folded into the white category, there was no reason to object. But once civil rights protection started in the 1950s, uh, then uh, it became advantageous to try to suggest that your group was something other than white. And also, by the way, I wanted to add something because there's a lot of confusion about this. Contrary to what has amounts to a lot of historical mythology has somehow built up, uh, Italians, Irish, Jews, Poles, other so-called ethnic minorities, while some people may not have thought of them as being white, while they may have always thought of themselves as being white, while they were subject often to harsh discrimination, sometimes violence, they were officially almost in all situations by the government and by private parties as well, like labor unions considered to be white. So if you had a whites only union, you were not excluding Jews or Italians. You might separately exclude them. You might have, we don't take Hebrews. We all take papists, that sort of thing, but that would be a separate exclusion in every category. They were not considered non-white.
0: Yeah. And so like, yeah, I mean, you might have like a, the thing they talk about, the anti-Semitism is like the, uh, Like social clubs, like you could have something like that, right? Uh, It was more, it was more religion than than race. Is that is that your is that your understanding? It was religion,
1: maybe what we might call ethnicity, right? Uh, But um, if you if your only restriction was whites only, right? And you are a Jewish person who wants to join the club, uh, that whites only policy would not be sufficient. Okay, well, we didn't mean only when we said whites only, we also we want some of these other people too. But but we have to add uh, that people of the Hebrew persuasion oh <laughs> or, or, or whatever are <laughs> all are also not permitted. Or people of you know south you know people who are of uh, you know Eastern European background for Poles or south you know they have other phrases to use for people. But even sort even when you come to sort of um, restrictive covenants in property, if you said this property could only be sold to a white person, that would not exclude Jews or Catholics or other ethnic groups. You'd have to specifically even Asians. You'd have to uh, sometimes specifically mention them uh, because there would be some ambiguity whether you only meant to exclude. Uh, so-called color people, which would be black,
0: yeah, yeah, and one of the I mean one of the good pieces of evidence for the uh, uh, about uh, Jews being considered white is the um uh, the, the uh, confederacy, their secretary of state, uh Benjamin Judah, right? he was a he was uh, Jewish. Right.
1: Now, he was subject to a lot of anti-Semitism. Again, that was you know, we we can't go back what a lot of historians and popular writers do also is they take the black-white paradigm and they try to impose it on all of American history, but in fact, the United States has been a multi-ethnic country. While the black-white uh, conflict and oppression by really by, by blacks and whites looms large in American history, other groups simply were discriminated against in other ways, not for being non-white, but for not being Protestant or for not being uh, Northern European, but not because they were considered non-white as such.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I said his name was Benjamin Judah. It's Judah Benjamin. Judah
1: again. Benjamin. I said it wrong somehow. But yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sounded wrong when I said it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so yeah, Hispanics. You know, interestingly, were um, it, it, do you know? I, I think I've heard that the before the night, uh, the even the immigration bill of was sixty five. Basically, there were no quotas on the Western Hemisphere, so as many people from Latin America could come as as possible. Did, did, uh, have you have you looked into that? I haven't,
1: but you know what? What happened twice uh, in the nineteen thirties and the nineteen fifties were large scale deportations of Mexicans who didn't have papers, and sometimes yeah. even they did have papers, but didn't find them in time to stop being deported. Uh, but and people will say, well, there's a lot of deportation of American citizens. It was mostly people who are here without papers whose children were citizens and if their parents are going to leave, the children generally aren't going to stay. So again, when we say that Mexicans were not considered necessarily by the federal government to be a non-white group, that doesn't mean that there weren't harsh uh, consequences for being considered not as desirable, let's say, as as other groups. It's just that on the federal census or federal segregation or in, even in social life, right, um, uh, there were the Negro Leagues for black players, but there were plenty of Hispanic Ball players in the united states as long as you didn't look like you were black if you were someone of afro hispanic ancestry and look black they would send you off to the negro leagues but we had people like lefty gomez a famous pitcher uh mid-century who had hispanic names who
0: are obviously hispanic and
1: no one said oh you can't be in the big leagues because you're not
0: white yeah do you, so do you think i mean it seems like the yeah i, I haven't read the book like uh Uh, you know, how the Irish became white. But, you know, this stuff, you know, gets published all the time. And I've always, I haven't looked into it, but I've always been very skeptical. It seems like there's a, um, there's there's an effort to sort of, you know, there's two ways you could look at American history. You could look at American history from a white-centric or a black-centric perspective. So you could say blacks were treated in a special, singled out for treatment in a bad way. Or you could say whites were singled out for special treatment. And then like, you know, and, and so the question is like, it's sort of like a, depends on sort of your politics and your agenda. If you want to say everyone else has been treated closer to the white end or closer to the black end, um, do do you, do you see that as sort of that's how I that's how I sort of see the like the politics surrounding these debates? Does that yeah, make that, sense to you? Yeah, that
1: does. I mean, I've been thinking about lately why uh, there's so much insistence that the Irish, for example, weren't considered white, and um, you know, first of all, they're using a stylized, ahistorical. Version of what it means white. When they say not white, they mean not fully accepted as the equals of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants from Northern Europe, which is fine. But that 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 doesn't mean you're not white. But I think the his the um, political valence uh, comes down to well, the white. The sort of power structure of the United States considered all these people non-white but then they sort of gradually allowed uh, groups like the Irish or the Italians or the Jews to become white uh, and then and now all those groups have white privilege but unlike them black people can never sort of become white, and therefore we have to undo white privilege. So the idea is that that certain groups were able to assimilate into whiteness because they were close enough, even though they were originally considered uh, not white, but certain other groups can never assimilate into whiteness. It doesn't seem like there's any notion that we can all just assimilate into some sort of broad Americanness, which I think is actually at the grassroots level, despite a lot of Counter trends at the elite level is what's happening, particularly if you look at intermarriage rates and sort of just the, the way that the culture has come to accept uh, intermarriage, interracial marriage. I think the most remarkable statistic of, of all statistics that one could come up with about race in America is that in 1958, 4% of respondents to a Gallup survey said they approved of interracial marriage, 4 not 40, not 14, four. That means, by the way, in practice, that even most black people did not approve of interracial marriage because they were like 10%. So, and now it's well over 90%. And among young people, it's almost universal. And that is just a sea change in attitudes. And it's not just that they say that, it's there's actually, I mean, you just walk around, but statistically speaking, a huge percentage of people are marrying people from other races. And there is this opportunity for American identity to become this sort of multi-ethnic identity. But there are, of course, white nationalists who don't want that. But there's even a bigger group of people, I think, on the left who object to that. They believe that uh, we sh- they, they. Uh, I hate the, I hate the phrase cultural Marxism because I don't really know what it means and it seems to be used for our stuff but there is this idea uh, that I think that racial groups have replaced uh, the the. The economic class system and the left wing imagination as sort of the permanent divisions of society. So it used to be the working class versus the bourgeoisie, right? And they'll be eternally in conflict, but that kind of became obviously stupid and untrue. So now we, we, the, the oppressed become the, the those of what white skin privilege and the uh, unoppressed because, and, and, uh, the, the the oppressors become those with white skin privilege you're oppressed are those who don't and this will be an eternal conflict that can only be managed by the government giving each group set set privileges that assure equality uh, which is you know basically I'm a liber- uh, generally libertarian political views the least libertarian way you can imagine society right where the government decides you're a member of this group and you get ex privileges uh, I much prefer the idea that we can all just assimilate into Americans have an American identity
0: yeah and so, uh, when you when you say um, the the sort of the, the political uh, sort of uh, the political uh, agenda here is to say, well, in the past, these Irish people and these Italians they assimilated into whiteness, but blacks can't. Do they have a theory as to why the Irish and Italians can and, and blacks can't? Do do, do, do do these people have a view on um, Mexicans, for example? Do they think Mexicans are and Asians? Is this the, where the uh, white adjacent thing about Asians come from? Is that yeah? Sort of well. In
1: Right. So the right. So now it turns out that maybe even agents. I mean, part of it is political, right? There's a, There's been ever since. Um, counterintuitively, at least to our elites, uh, the election of Donald Trump led to Hispanics becoming a more Republican rather than a less Republican constituency. There's this uh, notion. Well, maybe they're not really people of color, right? Maybe we made a mistake in sort of including them. So it's sort of a political thing, uh, clearly. And the groups that they feel. Will be most politically uh, useful to them uh, are the ones who will be oppressed the oppressed but there is no real really good theory uh, sociologically speaking other than you know we do have a much stronger more longer lasting history of uh, hor- horrific discrimination based on uh, African descent and other things but there's no particular reason I mean I end the book with this you know there are a lot of ethnic, and religious conflicts in the U.S. that used to be really important, either regionally or nationally, that have just not only gone away, but that seem faintly ridiculous to us, right? There was massive violence against the early Mormon church, or literally mobs running people out of town. There was massive hostility to Catholics. The Ku Klux Klan was the single most powerful Non-party political organization in the United States in the 1920s. And it was primarily anti-Catholic, not uh, anti-black. I mean, they were anti-black and anti-Jewish too. But the real thing was, we want to get rid of the Catholics, right? Uh, there were conflicts between Basque herders and local ranchers. There were conflicts between Scandinavians in the Midwest and Germans and. And on and on and on, the ascended Irish versus the Protestant establishment. People wouldn't vote for John F. Kennedy for president in 1960 because he was Catholic. And a lot of Catholics voted him precisely because they felt like they were an oppressed group and they wanted one of their own in the White House. And all these things seem crazy to us now, right? We have a Catholic president, no one cares. We have a mostly Catholic Supreme Court, no one really cares except when abortion comes up and people sort of claim, well, this must be a Catholic thing. Uh, We have a a Catholic Speaker of the House, a Jewish uh, Senate president. This would have been unthinkable in 1960, right? Not that long ago, only a little bit more. Far as alive, and now it's routine. So why is it unthinkable that we could actually get beyond uh, racial classification in the United States? I don't think it is, but I do think that to the extent that there are political constituencies who want to object to that, they're making it less
0: likely. Yeah, yeah. Although, uh, you know, maybe so. uh, So, you know, maybe maybe there is a difference here in that the racial you know, racial characteristics are. You know, religion can become less important in society. I think people just care generally about religion less. Uh, so you know, if people aren't religious, then you know, what, what what's the religious conflict about? Race, I think that I think one thing you might why you might say is a little bit more intractable. And maybe you could look at other countries to see if other countries have gone beyond race to see how you know how. Uh, Uh, how plausible this is for the U.S., is that you have these, you know, these uh, physical differences, and they correlate with statistical differences in outcomes, right? Uh, uh, Socioeconomic status, uh, test scores. I mean, people tend to, you know, care about these uh, phenotypic, differences. People tend to relate to others like them. Um, and so, you know, maybe that's always going to be sort of a, a festering wound as long as there are disparities, which will there always be disparities. I, you know, I'm not one of these people who think we're going to solve these disparities. I mean, I think they'll always be there at some level. So is, is that possibly an argument for, uh, uh, for the stuff maybe being intractable to a certain degree? Uh,
1: it you know It is an argument, but I think one thing we have to keep in mind is that it wasn't that long ago. I actually said this at a speech at University of Chicago Law School, so my name is David Bernstein. It wasn't that long ago if I would go up and give a speech at somewhere like University of Chicago, people would look at me, hear my name, say, a Jew. And, they, and that would color what they would think about my, at least for a significant percent, of what they think about my talk. What now, yes, you have to is. go to
0: Twitter for that now.
1: Right, right. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. I, I don't know really think about. I don't know really think about your background. But Richard Hernania, I'm gonna think, of maybe Lebanese uh, background uh, or whatever. So, and he, that was Palestinian plus,
0: yeah.
1: Okay, yeah. So, um, so that's what that's the sort of thing people would 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 think. And uh, you know, um, some people uh, there's some small fraction that might think that now, but mostly they just see a white guy. And how did that happen? Right, there was no department of erasing ethnic differences. Uh, there was no reparations. There was no uh, special dorms, special orientations. At some point, society just decided uh, through some Hayekian kind of process, we're just not going to care what ethnic group a white person is from. Uh, and we're not we're just going to just, just consider them all generically white. Now, it's a little bit harder with the history we have and with uh, and so forth with Black Makawee. Some just decide that people are... Uh, you know, um, are are generically American? Uh, well, I, I we could. I mean, you know, speaker of Palestinian, I mean, there, you know, there's there's um, uh, what's her name? Uh, the activist uh, Linda Sarsour, who insists that she's a person of color. She's fairer skinned than I am, but she. But I am an oppressed member of an oppressed minority, so uh, therefore I am a person of color, and the media kind of goes along with this. But really, in practice, if she was walking around, even with her, he, even with her headscarf on, people would say, "Oh, there goes a white Muslim woman." If anything, maybe you know, or just a white woman. But uh, you know, if you decide, hey, we are going to insist that the government classify everybody, and that will have the social, uh, there will be it'll be more likely to happen. I mean, the government doesn't doesn't control the... Interestingly enough, like I said, despite a lot of political salience to dividing people by race and the fact that a lot of interest groups want people uh, divided by race, uh, Americans are intermarrying and so forth. But also, interestingly enough, like most people who are Asian American, if you ask them, and it's not me who asked them, like actual scientific public opinion surveys, say we don't identify with the label Asian American. Uh, Hispanic Americans or Latino Americans, depending on your preference, if you ask them, they'll say, yeah, we're okay with being called Hispanic or Latino, but we'd rather be called Mexican American or Guatemalan American or Cuban American or just American. So uh, if you go to an elite college, this notion that there's such a thing as an Asian American or that you're a Latino and that's your identity, uh, that's just sort of accepted as commonplace. But the public itself has not completely gone along with that.
0: Yeah, that, that that that's a great point. I mean, given how much um sort of propaganda there is towards this racial classification from elite sources, the fact that you can poll and, you know, this Hispanic, you know, pan Hispanic identity is not that popular. The fact that people will of all races oppose, you know, racial quotas in in polls. You know, there's something I think there's something deep in the American culture that resists sort of um uh, what's coming from from elites. So I think I think you're right. I think there is uh uh, sort of a a case for for optimism uh, there. Um, yeah, it's funny the the Linda Sarsour. Uh, there was a I don't know if you saw this in the New York Times. There was this uh, graphic uh, and they had uh, faces of power and they were just counting white people and people of color and they had like here's Fortune 500 CEOs, here's the Senate, here's Congress, and this was a like a big spread in the New York Times. And and so like the the, the white the people considered white would be in like one color, and then the people who are people of color were like had a different background, and then like uh, you go in there and you have like a, uh, Justin Amash, uh, and he's uh, considered white, and then Rashida Talib um, is considered a person of color. Um, and John Sununu, uh, who's a, was a Middle Eastern background too, is also considered a white person. And some other Middle Easterners also considered yeah. a person of color. And I, uh, yeah, I actually, I asked the New York Times about this on Twitter and I, I didn't expect a response, but they responded. They said something like, you know, we, we asked for self identification. So there were these people from the exact. They had to like put everyone in a white or non-white category. People from the exact same backgrounds, and they put them. I thought they were just doing it politically. I thought they were just doing Republicans can right. white, and then uh, you know right. Democrats from the same place are non-white. But no, they according to them, they they actually went out and, and asked these you know congressmen uh, and these other people uh, what they what they identified as. Uh, so I think you're right. And the um, Yeah, I I always thought the, uh, I I thought there was this, have you seen the polls on uh, Hispanics lately? I mean, the Hispanics, they shifted towards Republican in 2020, uh, but the polls indicate, you know, if anything, that that's accelerating um, since the 2020 election. I mean, it's really, I mean, they they look like basically white people in some polls. Have you seen this?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, uh, there's really, there was a significant amount of pretty bad discrimination in parts of California, Texas, New Mexico against Mexican laborers and so forth. But we have to remember the vast majority of Hispanics who cut in the United States are actually post-1965 immigrants who are subject to civil rights laws, even affirmative action. And there's really no reason inherently to think that their ultimate trajectory would be any different than other uh, immigrant groups who are somewhat darker than the average White American, right? Greeks or Turks or uh, you know the what? You know or or Arab Americans or anybody else. Uh, There's just um, the Ford Foundation, among others, in the '60s, decided well, if we want to have a more left-wing America, we need to create more minority groups that will become constituents of the federal government. They had a, a, a very a significant project to make Hispanics think of themselves uh, as such and create an infrastructure like the Me- Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund. And oddly enough, they were they were helped in this by none other than Richard Nixon, who was concerned about Chicano activist radicalism and Puerto Rican nationalism. Uh, and he felt like creating a pan-Hispanic identity uh, would... Uh, de-radicalize them by giving them a more American-centered identity, but also make them p- possible constituencies for affirmative action that he could pay off. Uh, and then the, the really interesting thing about it is okay, well, then Nixon says, wait a second, but if we're going to help the Puerto Ricans and the Mexicans who are in fact often of you know more indigenous ancestry and look darker, what about the Cuban Americans? They vote for us but they're also overwhelmingly self-identified as white and lighter skinned overall. And so he added them. And once you add Cuban-Americans, you can't really exclude anybody, right? Argentines, Venezuelans, uh, because they're as European descended as just about any other group. So all of a sudden we have uh, white people essentially who happen to have Spanish-speaking ancestries being considered a minority group. It doesn't make a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. Is it, don't law schools though do uh, ask you about Mexico? If I recall correctly, they ask you about if you're Mexican or Puerto Rican. They don't ask you if you're Hispanic. So they exclude Cubans. Am I remembering that right? Uh, That was interestingly enough. They used
1: to do that uh, in the Grutter case involving affirmative action at the University of Michigan Law School before the Supreme Court. The district court actually found the University of Michigan Law School's rationale for why they were engaging in affirmative action, which was diversity of ethnicity in higher education, couldn't be true because they limited the Hispanic category to Mexicans and Puerto Ricans born in the mainland, and clearly if they wanted diversity, the more different Uh, Latino groups they had, the better. So University of Michigan denied that they had done that. Supreme Court didn't really address the issue, but they denied it. They said, oh no, we consider all Hispanics the same. And that, I think, is sort of the black letter law now. They do ask you when you apply to college which Hispanic group you're from. But I don't think that that uh, is necessarily meaningful in admissions, unless for some reason, uh, they have like a Mexican American group on campus and they want to make sure they have enough students to keep it going, or whatever. But as far as affirmative action goes, uh, there's no difference between being in even a Spaniard. You know, your parents could have been wealthy, uh, wealthy descendants of you know, Queen Isabella, who've been dominating Spain for, for centuries, uh, and have always been a wealthy, powerful family. Your kid, you, you come to the U.S. from a citizen, you're as eligible for affirmative action as the Capancino coming from rural Mexico, who has a third grade education and is very dark skinned.
0: So yeah, I re- so I remember being interested in this stuff. So when I was uh, 2010, I, I went to law school, and I remember that still being the norm. It was Mexican and Puerto. R- I remember looking into it. I, I maybe I'm misremembering, and then the it's Cubans possible. were sort of excluded.
1: It's possible that some law schools never updated their uh, application materials, but I think that would oddly enough uh, leave them vulnerable. Uh, ironically, maybe leave them vulnerable to a, to a lawsuit. The reason I say it's ironic is that the reason that Puerto Ricans, and Mexicans were originally put into, you know, in the 1950s, the federal government started um, monitoring its contractors for discrimination. And the categories were white, Mexican, and Puerto, I mean, sorry, white, black, Mexican, Puerto Rican, sometimes they had Jews on there, and then others, you could list other groups if you want to, Jews fell out. Mexican Americans and Puerto Ricans were there because they had low socioeconomic indicators, and they were Uh, felt to be subject to race discrimination because many of them had significant Indian or African uh, ancestry. Uh, So the idea was that they're somehow akin to African Americans and they did face something like Jim Crow in some parts of the country, but now that but but now it applies to all people who happen to have a Spanish-speaking ancestor. So example I like to give, I mean, a lot of Latino, uh Latinos who I know who benefit from affirmative action, you know, their ancestors fled Nazi Germany, stopped off in Cuba or Costa Rica or Argentina for a cent- for uh, a generation, then came to the United States and now they're Hispanic. And why, you know, Juan Goldberg, whose ancestors stopped off in Cuba, gets affirmative action, but John Jonathan Goldberg whose ancestors have exactly the same look culture ethnicity and everything else but didn't ever happen to speak spanish don't doesn't really make any sense but that's what we have
0: yeah so do you think the you think so? You look back at the time in the 1970s when the Hispanic sort of uh, identity, at least at elite levels, was sort of coalescing. Do you, do you think do you see more as the uh, if you had to? Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's too intertwined to make to answer this question. But is it more the federal government or is it like the Ford Foundation that's basically um, the impetus to to, uh, uh, to to have this broader category? So Mike
1: Gonzalez, who's at the Heritage Foundation, wrote a book about this that came out. I think last year, um, he really emphasizes the role of the left-wing foundations and activists. But I think that the left-wing foundations and activists would have been perfectly happy to have like a separate Mexican-American identity and a separate Puerto Rican identity and with maybe loose connections. That was really, to a large extent, the federal government that Want to homogenize and the, the homogenization was partly for the political reasons I mentioned, and partly because they, you know, they have to count somehow, and the fewer categories they have, the no, easier. Exactly. And how do you, you, know, do you want to stop breaking up into every single different group? Uh, and the, but also, um, and you know, this is getting more into sociology than my own expertise in law. But uh, there was a socio- there was a, a strong sociological or eco- and economic reason for this, which is that when um, Univision was created. Right, the national network of Spanish speaking uh, ch- TV channels, they found that Mexicans wouldn't watch shows from Cuba for well from Cuba, you wouldn't get there, from Argentina and Puerto Ricans wouldn't watch shows from Mexico and that was a problem for them, right? Because then they would have to appeal to all different markets. So so uh, so Univision uh, launched a big campaign itself to create a pan Hispanic identity so they could better market Spanish language programming from any country in Latin America to all American Latinos.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there was, yeah. There's there's a yeah. There's a good book on this called uh, "Making uh, Hispanics," which I think uh, I think you cite that goes into the Univision thing, which is which is funny because they it was it was sort of a. Yeah, the light the see the, the licensing, all that other stuff is just right. just a big a big mess. So that's so that's the Hispanic category was sort of a accounting thing. I mean the uh, you know Asian American Pacific Islander. I always thought sort of funny. It just sounds so arbitrary. I mean, it sounds like you know saying uh, Arabs and uh, uh, Argentinians. I mean, it just seems like so completely random. Uh, so how did we? You know, what's the story of how we ended up with that?
1: Well, you know, when these classifications were being Adopted first for civil rights purposes in the late '50s and early '60s, uh, Asian Americans were recognized as a as a racial minority group. Obviously, Japanese, Chinese, Filipinos, and of course, Japanese Americans had recently been interned in the camps so during World War II. So there was certainly some impetus to ensure they didn't face uh, formal discrimination. But really, uh, there were so few people of Asian descent of that part of. East Asian descent in the United States at the time that no one really talked about too much. It wasn't any organized effort by anybody. It was like, oh, we have to fill out these forms. Oh, let's just throw in uh, the Japanese and Chinese, There's only like half a million of them in the country anyway. And if we see like, somewhere where a, lot of, where a lot of Japanese live and no Japanese are being employed, we can investigate. But no one really thought about it all that much. Uh, and then in the 1970s, when there was becoming increasing immigration, uh, there had been a movement among activists uh, to com- to sort of consolidate Japanese and Chinese and Filipino and other Americans into a, an Asian American group. The, it was the so-called yellow movement uh, by radicals. They said whites treat us all alike. But it was a really difficult task because right, Japanese uh, and Filipinos and Chinese mutually Traditionally hate each other because you know because of their of uh, the, of what happened back home, especially during World War II. Uh, but the but the United States government decided to create a category. For all of them, I think primarily, again, we have to count people. Different agencies are counting them differently. There aren't really enough Japanese and Chinese and Filipinos at the time in the United States and certainly not Indians to have separate categories for each. So, we'll, and, you know, the kind of person who discriminated against Chinese would probably discriminate against Japanese too. This is mostly for civil rights purposes, so let's just add them in. Now, Indians are a really interesting uh, example or phenomenon because there are, only, there are very few Indians, uh, you know, South Asians in the United States, uh, by the nineteen sixties. After sixty five there started to be more and more, but there still weren't very many. And they were originally classified as white. When the government drafted its official classifications, they were put into the white category. And so you see, what they're Asian, well Iranians, Iraqis, Palestinians—you know, and so forth—they're all uh, from Asia, also, and they're all uh, classified as white Armenians. Uh, So they were originally classified as white, and and people pointed out, well, you know, they're phenotypically Caucasian, even if they have dark skin often, and they're economically overall pretty successful. So why put them in a minority category? But one of the few existing Asian. Uh, in Asian Indian organizations got wind of this and said, "You know, we want we want to be invited to the meetings of Asian civil rights groups. We want to be eligible for government contract affirmative action." And they lobbied to have Indians included in the Asian category, and they succeeded. If the classifications had been made five years earlier, before there were enough Asian Indians in the United States to have a lobbying group, uh, Indian Americans would have been classified as white
0: yeah all this stuff is so I mean it's just amazing like the consequence you know it's so this little thought is put into it I mean the. I think one point you mentioned in the book there was some Comment period in some agency or something, and hundreds were in favor of classifying Indians as Asians, and then but like only like a handful of people even like sent, sent any message to the agency that they shouldn't. Do you remember this?
1: Yeah, because there was an organized, you know, there was an organized effort to write letters from this one group to uh, support it, and no one else was really paying attention. So there's no organized opposition. Uh, so they just okay, well, no one's wrong. but it wasn't like anyone. It was in general. I mean, I, we should go back a little bit. You know, so Casper Weinberger was Secretary of Health and Health. Education and welfare, which is now the Department of Health and Human Services, in 1973. And he got this report about from the education folks in, in saying, you know, we're really having a hard time gathering education statistics because some, some of our sub-agencies are listing Mexicans, Cubans, and Puerto Ricans separately. Some are listing them as Spanish-speaking households. Some are listing them as Spanish surname. And you know, we can't get it's all apples and oranges, we can't compare the data. So Casper Weinberger said, let's let's get some commission together with a bunch of different agencies and try to standardize these classifications. And they did, but they didn't do it in like any sort of let's get together sociologists and population experts and the census bureau and all that. They did it in sort of the one example that I know the most about is Hispanic. And what they really what they literally did was they 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 found one woman in the government who was Puerto Rican, one who was uh, Cuban American and one who was Mexican American. And they each, they said each of these women would represent the entire population <laughs> of this group. And they, and they weren't, they were just, you know, low level, uh, relatively junior government officials who volunteered to do this. And they just sat in a room and decided, we're going to call this what? Latino? Now nah, we don't like that. Hispano, Spanish, certainly. No, we, we like it. We'll decide. We decide on Hispanic. They argued about it for a while. They decided on Hispanic. And by deciding on Hispanic, we're excluding Brazilians, but including people from Spain. Why? Because we three people decided that Spanish descent is the key. Uh, And and that's what happened without, you know, and uh, there was no. There was no real public debate about it, no real public discussion. No one really thought it was that important. The, the standards themselves, and this is really only for data collection purposes, we're not going to use this for determining eligibility for government uh, programs. This is not meant to be anthropological or scientific in nature. And yet, almost immediately, it was used for government programs and has come to be considered anthropological in nature
0: yeah yeah i mean so you know it seems like these are sort of consequential decisions just how the government relates to the citizens how it um you know how it um how it sort of interacts with them you know whether it sees us as individuals as or members of groups that get certain privileges you know given to us or taken away and you know it's not like because the indian american group was like so powerful like they were not powerful at all like you know it seems like if there was just you know, I think back to sort of alternative history, if there was one or two congressmen, maybe, who were willing to sort of lean on the agencies and said, you know, well, what's the justification for this? Um, you know, could it, could it have been differently? I mean, did it did it take, the, you know, what, if people, if anyone was sort of awake and paying attention and sort of asking them to justify this, might have things gone a different way, if, uh, from, you know, from your reading of the history?
1: Sure, and there were people who were advocating, for example, on behalf of Italian Americans and Polish Americans, saying they should be enumerated separately. In fact, um, until un- by 1973, there was—I think I'm the first one to have actually looked at this document, and I don't know how long because I couldn't—I didn't see it cited anywhere. I came across it kind of randomly at archive.com. The Civil Rights Commission of the U.S. put out a report on classifications in '73, and they found that a lot of agencies were using. Uh, a classification called Other, and they would use it for groups that were locally known to have historically faced discrimination, had low socioeconomic status, Cajuns in Louisiana, or uh, French speakers in New Hampshire, Portuguese immigrants in Massachusetts. And that there was no such category added eventually, but it could just as easily have been. Uh, Italians and Poles and perhaps Jews were not included, despite some efforts, especially for Poles and Italians, primarily because... African-American congressmen who were interested in this were policing the boundaries. And the people who were appointed to run the programs and so forth were often, you know, originally almost all affirmative action programs were really considered to be for African-Americans, even though now probably Hispanics and Asians dominate federal contracting affirmative action, not blacks. It was considered an African-American program. And they said, it's okay. you know, we don't mind if you add Hispanics because they're our political allies and there aren't that many of them. Uh, And we don't mind if you include Asian Asians there are so few of them, but you can't include Italians and Poles. They're white and they don't deserve anything. Uh, one of the more interesting little anecdotes in the book is that there was a movement to include Hasidic Jews. Hasidic Jews have some claim to be uh, considered a disadvantaged minority for. Federal contracting purposes, they dress funny, they have funny accents. Their first language is often Yiddish. I mean, I'm not saying their accents are actually funny, but you know, my grandmother mother <laughs> an accent like that. But you know, to other to to your mainstream American, they have all sorts of religious res- restrictions that make it difficult for them to uh, be a mainstream society. So they say we should get these benefits too. And a couple of agencies they didn't, they still do. But when it came to the Small Business Administration, Congressman Perry Par- Mitchell, who was an African American congressman, sort of put his foot down and said, "I object strongly to this. It's going to cause." trouble, and he persuaded the, S- the SBA at the last minute to back off of that. On the other hand, when Indians were originally excluded, and other, I think other agents as well, uh, and they lobbied, he was okay with that. So there's an example, I mean, for better or for worse, uh, that this one congressman had a lot of influence on who is ultimately considered a minority, and it was just his arbitrary view of who is sort of a deserving of minority treatment and who isn't.
0: Yeah. So it was it because, you know, with the agency, so if like a Southern... You know, if a Southern uh, senator or you know conservative uh, had stood up and said, you know, Indians uh, shouldn't you know be getting small business loans, uh, you know, set aside for minorities if they were trying to contract, you know, it seems like maybe that would not have worked. Did the sort of the black uh, congressmen and the civil rights leaders did they have this sort of moral aura about them where they could sort of uh, the you know federal agencies would listen to them? They had the
1: aura. they were often also the people who are in charge of the rel- relative, relevant programs. Uh, and they had the ear, especially of Jimmy Carter, because this was all going on during the Carter administration. So he wanted to satisfy, uh, the, uh, his African American constituency. So, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the official classifications themselves were made almost without really much in the way of political lobbying. But once they had to be enforced by the agencies and they had all these different like boundary issues and who's eligible for what program, uh, definitely a lot of politics came. Again, like you said, it was often just there was one voice speaking up and no one really objected. So even though, so the small business administration for whatever reason, for example, declined to go along with the, uh, with, with with the rules that the rest of the government had to follow, and they decided that their category for hispan for Hispanic was actually not going to be Hispanic, but was going to be Latino or something like that, and was going to include Brazilians, where and would not include people from Spain. So then there was something called the Spanish American or the Iberian-Americans, somewhere like that Contractors Association of McLean, Virginia, who happens to be very close to the capital, so easy for them to lobby. And they said, you know, we don't think this is right. We all, if someone sees a name Rodriguez or Hernandez, they'll know if we're Mexican or Spanish. So we face the same discrimination. So we should be included uh, as Spanish-Americans. And the SBA said, okay, no one seems to be objecting to that. Uh, there aren't very many Spanish-Americans around, so let's include Spanish-Americans. And then they said, but wait a second, if we we're already including Brazilians uh, as Latinos, and then, we're not, and then we're including Spanish as Hispanic, don't we need to inc- include Portuguese? And the Portuguese got included too, uh, which, you know, uh, you wouldn't think we have that much of an effect on anything, but then it turns out that in 1990, uh, the D.C. government discovered after an audit that 80% of all Contracts that were set aside for minorities in the District of Columbia were going to these three brothers who were Portuguese. Like at the city, it's like 65% African-American at the time. The program was really meant primarily to help African-American businessmen, but a bunch of white immigrants from uh, Portugal are actually getting almost all the benefits.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that, 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 that's funny. And yeah, like as, as you, I mean, as you said, the reason this matters is because government at the federal and local and state level Often has um, uh, set insides, right? A certain percentage have to go to minorities. the The, the small The small business uh, administration basically just has a pot of money. It just gives to anyone who's a quote unquote minority. Is that how it works?
1: Something like that. I mean, there are some legal restrictions. I mean, when most people think. I kind of thought actually. until so I so I start writing this book. The Supreme Court theoretically invalidated uh, strict quotas for set-asides in the late 1980s and 1990s. But what happened is they had a loophole that said but if you could prove via a legitimate study that there was historical discrimination against certain minorities in your city, town, state, whatever, and that that has continuing ramifications, then you're allowed to still do it. So a whole industry popped up that created really... Often pretty bogus studies, but enough to give uh, a rationale for what the city was doing. Uh, often contractors associations would sue, the law would get overturned. So they just then, uh, the city would then just create another study, pay for another study, and they don't have to so again, they eventually realize they're never gonna be able to win. It's costing them a fortune uh, to constantly challenge these things. So there are either there are some set asides, there's also just a uh, preferences, bid preferences, if you, you know, we take 10% off your bid if you're a member of a particular minority group. And the interesting thing about it is we're we're all used to thinking about affirmative action and college admissions because that gets the most attention. Uh, and affirmative firm of action, college admissions, African Americans get by far the biggest preferences. Hispanics get a smaller preference. American Indians get a smaller preference, and Asians get no preference or perhaps face discrimination. But when it comes to contracting, all minorities are, get the exact same level of preference. So it doesn't. There was a profile in the Washington Post about a decade ago, which I thought was so outrageous. But she, but nevertheless, no one seemed outraged except me. I'm a woman who immigrated here from India. Had a lot of resources. Figured out that she was eligible once she got became a citizen from an already contract and built an eighty million dollar fortune. On government contracting, I was like, "Well, good for her for being too entrepreneurial," but surely no one thinks that the point of affirmative action in government contracting was to help wealthy immigrants from India or China or 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 Mexico or anywhere else uh, become extremely wealthy and not help uh, Americans who whose families suffered centuries of discrimination in the country.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe maybe it's better from a competence perspective. If you include as many people as possible, you'll get at least the best from a a bigger you know bigger slice of the world. So you know maybe from a sort of a good governance you know perspective, it it's maybe a preferable policy.
1: Well, Well, these classifications, interestingly enough, do tend to be based on heritage, and there's no. Percent, except there's weird stuff with Native Americans that have a separate chapter on their sort of own category. They'll of special laws that apply them. And some of those require a one quarter blood quantum, which is fascinating in itself. The government will actually issue you a certificate uh, of what your blood quantum is. It sort of reeks of, of to me, of like Nazi stuff, but it nevertheless, it's out there. But except for that, no one says, well, exactly what percentage of dissent you have to have. And I think it's pretty clear that almost any agency will accept grandparent, and maybe beyond, but certainly at least grandparent. So as we have more and more intermarriage in the United States, we have more people who have one Hispanic, or one Asian, or one uh, uh, Native American, or one um, uh, African American grandparent, we're going to increase, basically, within a generation, 80% or something of Americans going to be eligible for these things, which will make them completely pointless. So one thing I've mentioned in the book is that if you are in favor of affirmative action, do believe that members of historically discriminated against minorities uh, should be given preferences in contracting. You should be concerned about this phenomenon because if everyone's getting a preference, then in effect, no one is.
0: Yeah. So going back uh, to what you said about the, the the use of study. So this is, I mean, this is fascinating because this is how things often work. You have this. Um, you you had this court case. It was called Cronson, right? Cronson, Yeah. Cronson, Yeah. And, and and so you have the conservative wing who doesn't want this stuff. You have a liberal wing that does. But you have like like Sandra Day O'Connor, right? Um, does she, was it her opinion or at least O'Connor's? Yes. I think yes, right. in this. Um, and the idea is you can have it, but not in all circumstances. You have to prove that there has been historical discrimination against, you know, if you want to, uh, in Richmond, Virginia, if you want to, uh, you know, give uh, minority set asides to, uh, Koreans, you have to prove the Richmond, Virginia at some point in history just created against Koreans and they're not doing well. And so what happens is whatever they want to do anyway, like a cottage industry of studies show up. And so you get the same policy in the end. Um, but you've just wasted a bunch of, you know, government money and resources and effort on these these studies, these so-called experts that are gonna come and tell the government what it wants to do anyway. That that's basically what happened, right? You had the like the worst of all worlds from this sort of moderate opinion.
1: Right. I mean if in there have been some limits, right? So, I mean, for example, the city of Richmond had included Aleuts, uh, you know, people from the Aleutian Islands and, you know, things like that. You know, if there's a group that really isn't present in a city, they won't be included. And there have been some court decisions saying, well, you can have Blacks and Hispanics, but not Asians or Asians and, and Blacks, but not Hispanics. But for the most part, yeah, things have gone back the way they were, except now we waste a lot of money on studies. And you can say a similar, I mean, I think we got even We got the worst of all worlds also from the Bakke decision, right? So the historical, the rationale really for affirmative action was, look, we have a whole group of people in the United States, primarily African-American, who are isolated from mainstream society, deprived of educational opportunities. We're still very segregated, so we want to make sure that, you know, if we don't have any black doctors, most white doctors don't want to uh, practice in black neighborhoods. So we have to make sure that they're served. All those reasons all make a certain amount of sense, right? Uh, whether you agree with them or disagree with them, you can imagine that. And and Justice Powell says, oh, no, we don't, we can't, you can't do it for that reason, the real reason. It has to be for educational diversity. Uh, so, and so that means that instead of actually looking, having a pragmatic reason for trying to do this, to uh, bring people into the mainstream society, instead it's all about uh, whether we have more of designated groups. Why these particular people are diverse and not others? Like, why, you know, so you're Palestinian, why having, let's say, the first Palestinian, uh, at University of Michigan is, does not add to diversity, but having the 100th Mexican would doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, Powell, uh, in Baki and I think O'Connor in Croson, uh, were, was assuming a certain amount of good faith on the part of the actors involved, but they really were going to then try to create educational diversity. They really would only um, try to include groups who had historically and faced and were still currently facing discrimination and contracting. But it turns out in, poli- in anything that involves politics and ideology, and especially with regard to race, I think is a very sensitive topic. Good faith is hard to come by. People have their preconceived notions, and they're going to do what they want to do. And if you give them an out, they will take it. So in both cases, I think you have been better off if anything, just saying, well, look, um, if you want to redress the historical exclusion of African Americans from slavery times till today in a narrow way, go ahead and do that. But don't go telling us that some, yes, the, the son of the Mexican ambassador to the United States who decides to stay here after he finishes private school uh, should be getting a preference uh, for for anything in particular. Uh, don't tell us that Indian Americans, almost all who are one of the wealthiest groups in the United States, and almost all of whom came since the nineteen seventies when America was a much more racially and ethnically liberal society it's ever been. Don't tell us that they're in the sort of the same position as African Americans, that they need to, to to be getting special help and contracting. It doesn't really make any sense.
0: Yeah, what what are the magnitudes as far as government contracting? Like, so you know, government contracts with a you know zillion different companies for an you know infinite number of reasons. Uh, You know, federal, you know, state, local governments—they do a lot of contracting. Well, what are we talking on on magnitudes here? Is is it a huge part of you know what government uh, does to the private sector, or or is it more uh, more limited?
1: That's a really interesting question. I mean, it's a little bit, you know, I'm mostly focused on the classification issue. Uh, I should point out that while affirmative action comes up a lot, because that's the area where racial classification is most prominent, controversial, has the most effect on people's lives, uh, except maybe nowadays, they're, they're trying to move into medical treatment, which you could talk about. But uh, the uh, so I'm not I'm not a, 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 a huge expert on how the uh, affirmative action programs actually work in practice. The statistic I've seen is that approximately three hundred billion dollars of federal contracts are subject and are subject to these rules. So for the most part, the rules. There are some quotas of you must have a certain percentage, but for the most part, they tend to be you get a bit a preference in bidding, uh, and the preference, uh, it, you know, varies depending on the jurisdiction. So, even if you have the preference, doesn't mean you're going to win the bid. So, I don't know. Precisely how much, and there's all sorts of complications. So, for example, a lot of the minority contracts, it turns out that a company of all white men will start a figure, you'll have a figurehead a president who is of a minority group, or you'll have someone you know, named John Smith, whose great great grandfather came here from Spain, and they'll list themselves. So, and I, the, the first, I thought the most interesting issue. Given that the history of these programs is that they were really meant primarily to bring African Americans into the mainstream, and they were marketed as such in the '70s, what percentage of these pro- of of the affirmative action beneficiaries and government contracts today are African American? It's impossible. I I have I have a friend who said I know people in the Trump administration in the in the Department of Transportation. They would have this information. I will ask them if they will look at you know to me to give to you, and. Uh, The response I got back a few weeks later was no one will ever release this information. (laughs) It would be incredibly embarrassing to the government and no one wants to bear the responsibility of anyone finding out if they release it. So my guess, my wild guess, and I have a little bit of data, but not much is that less, less than 20% of the contracts that are uh, subject to affirmative action or going to minorities or going to African-Americans, it may be way less, it may be closer to 20. I don't know, but I'm, I'm getting, you know, if you think about it, um, Uh, since African Americans are the least have the fewest assets of of all the ethnic groups, have the least have lower educational levels, uh you would expect that on an even playing field among minority groups, that the Indian engineer uh who works for Microsoft decides to start his own company or one is obviously going to be in a better position to get these contracts than than the sort of intended beneficiaries.
0: Yeah, I did see actually. I did see some data on the Small Business Administration. I don't remember the exact, but they did have broken down by um uh you know the set aside programs, and it was primarily uh primarily um, Asian as as you would as, as you would suspect. I don't know. I don't think that covers the entire entirety of the government. It's just the SBA, um, and it's just might have just been one program in the SBA. But yeah, your your suspicions were you know confirmed from 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 what I've seen. Um, so. So, yeah, you have the, yeah, the, uh, you mentioned the, um, the scientific classifications. This is, this is fascinating. Can you talk about this? Because we sort of, we've made medical research have to adhere to these arbitrary categories that government made up. I mean, this is just unbelievable. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Sure. So, um, back in the early 90s, a bunch of women's groups got together and said, you know, we don't like the way medical research is being done in this country because disproportionately it's being done on men. And men and women are actually physiologically different in a variety of ways, and it could turn out that if you're not getting a sufficient representation of women, you're not really finding out whether something's really safe and effective for women. And the reason that women will not be included in studies is because... they're always concerned whether well, if they're pregnant, there could be side effects, and uh they have their cycles that make, you know, with hormonal cycles that make uh the time of the month more relevant for certain kinds of drugs. So it's easier just to deal with men. So they said we don't so okay, it's easier for the companies to deal with men, we want to make them deal with women too. Not completely unreasonable. Uh at the last minute, when legislation along these lines is going through Congress, some African-American members of Congress said, you know what, a lot of these studies are being done primarily on white men. And maybe, and we don't like that. Uh, there are historical reasons for that, too. There's a lot of distrust of the medical establishment in the African-American community. All the more reason to require them to reach out and include uh, African-Americans. Now, the problem with this is that, for the most part, there's really no particular reason to think, unlike men and women, that there's significant physiological differences between what we call racial groups. But nevertheless, they start pushing for that. Eventually, Congress mandated uh, the... National Institutes of Health and the Federal Food and Drug Administration to require all researchers to get enough members of racial minority groups in their studies. Uh, They did not specify which groups. They just said, you know, make sure you have racial minorities. So the FDA and NIH could have actually done something along the lines of get a bunch of scientists together, geneticists, uh, anthropologists, whatever, whatever, and say, okay, if we are going to do this in a serious scientific way, what groups do we want to study? Right. And there are a lot of, and the groups that we might want to study don't necessarily match at all with the, with racial groups, right? There are several groups, Ashkenazic Jews, Icelanders, Hungarians, uh, gypsies, right? That have their own, they were sort of isolated from, population, either by uh, religious restrictions or by um, geography being islands and so forth. Uh, And we'll study it that way and make sure we have representatives. But two problems with that. First of all, there's so many little subgroups, what do you do? And secondly, uh, if you want to imagine uproar, imagine the FDA actually getting people to get Two scientists together to try to figure out which groups are really genetically different. So they just took the easiest, least common denominator way out and said, okay, we're just going to use these statistics that were made only for civil rights enforcement purposes that specifically said they're not to be used for scientific or anthropological uh, anything. And said, we're going to use those. So now we have a situation where medical researchers uh, who have any ties all to federal government, which is most medical research, and all drugs that have to be approved, all medical devices that have to be approved, have to make sure they have enough representatives of these different minority groups to satisfy the FDA. And it's just completely nuts. For example, take the, hey, take Hispanics. You have to have enough Hispanics. Forget putting aside the, the question of what enough means, uh, and enough is, you know, if you have a representative, something close to the representation of a population, that's probably enough. What racial group are hispanics what genetic differences they have it's a it's like saying american they're a multi-racial group they're come they're european they're uh they're, they're uh, indigenous and the indigenous groups are or have different subgroups so europeans have different subgroups within them not all spaniards are the same basques are not the same as Catalonians uh in their genetic history and so forth uh they have africa there are people who are hispanic or of asian descent there are a lot of people who have African ancestry. So what it makes absolutely no scientific sense to say you have to have extra representation of Hispanic, except for this. People say, well, if you don't have enough Hispanics, then Hispanics are going to think that since it wasn't tested on them, it may not be safe and effective for them. But as I point out, whenever this issue comes up, and this is true for black people and any other group as well, it's, it's circular. The reason Hispanic people think that Hispanics need to be included is because the government has decided they need to be included. I'm an Ashkenazi Jew. I am completely aware Ashkenazi Jews have some diseases that we're much more susceptible to. I'm aware that we have certain you know, certain genetic uh, anomalies that are not common to other European populations. I don't worry about not being represented in, say, vaccine studies because there's really no reason to. Uh, but I have more reason to worry than someone who's Hispanic, right? But I don't because no one tells me to. So it's completely circular. And it's absurd. It kind of costs lives. Moderna actually uh, was forced by the head of NIH, head of NIH said, I'm not going to endorse your vaccine unless you get more members of minority groups uh, in your studies and delayed their research by a few weeks. I don't know how many lives that cost, but for, for, for nothing, because there was no reason to think that vaccines. Would it worked differently. Why would mRNA work differently on a black person than on a white person? It was completely preposterous. And then you have these additional problems. Even if you thought that race was salient for medical research, which most scientists don't, uh, the way we don't, the way we ca- classify race. I gave you the Hispanic example, right? The way we classify race has nothing to do with actual, anything that would actually be genetically race. So Ethiopians, for example, or Somalians, are closer genetically to Arabs and Jews and other sort of Middle Eastern originated Mm -hmm. groups uh, than they are to uh, Sub-Saharan Africans. But We put them in the African category because that's how we classify anyone with black ancestry as African. Then people from South Asia are Caucasian. If you want to go by so-called race, uh they're not east they're very different from east indians, but they're all Asian. So you can have a study that has the requisite percentage of Asians, but you don't know if those Asians were Chinese or Filipino who are mostly Austronesian uh, anthropologically, or South Asian who are Caucasian. So it's completely meaningless. Uh uh but it's it's the government requires you to do it. And this has had this has two really bad effects besides potentially delaying research. First, um it prevent, it, it's been inhibiting scientists from doing what they really should do, which was really look at actual genetics. Genetic tests are quick and cheap. Look for the genes that you're looking at. Try to find the genes that might differ among groups and rather than looking at race. And the other thing that it does is that it gives us false sense, uh, of, uh, 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 that we've actually tested things that we haven't. We don't know if you've tested it on black subjects, if you've tested it on Ethiopians or Somalians, if you, if you're, located in Minnesota and you go to the Somalian community to do, to get your African-American quota filled, it tells you nothing about uh, West Africans who make up most of the American black population.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do have to say that I, I, I don't think actually the, uh, the genetic distance from, uh, uh, Ethiopians and Somalis is closer to Middle Easterners than than uh, West Africans. My friend uh, Razib Khan does all these you know studies. He's done my genome, and yeah, you could do a chart. And I, I don't think it's but your larger point is your larger point is correct. These uh, things are. I'm not
1: i I read. I've re- I read that in respectable sources, but I'm no.
0: It's so I will, <laughs> yeah. I
1: will uh, not not go on. But yeah, I mean, but th- but part of the problem is so I got, I got the third problem is that this is actually seeping down uh, into medical, this has seat down to medical care. So they'll ask you when you come to the hospital or whatever, are you black or, or white or whatever you are? Or if you're unconscious, they will just assume. And they actually will sometimes have different um, medical uh, uh, ways of different decisions of what drugs to give you or what, or how to treat you. If you have heart disease or whatever, basically a race, but there's very little scientific evidence for these things. Uh, but, and, and, even if there was scientific evidence, so if you happen, you know, there's a very interesting study where they asked, where they actually asked people their race, and then they asked doctors to identify with the race. And not a single person of American Indian descent was correctly identified as American Indian. So you may have your protocols about how to deal with American Indians, and even if they're right, you're not doing it because you're not identifying with people that way when they come in unconscious.
0: Yeah, yeah, and the people who say they're American Indians, you know, and don't look American Indian, I don't, I don't know how much American Indian industry they, they have on average. Uh, the, um, yeah, this this thing about, you know, the trust and uh, sort of the scientific process, this reminds me of um, the other uh, thing about the uh, vaccine, where they, would, you know, people would say, um, why don't they speed up the uh, the approval, and they would say, well, you know, then people won't trust it. Or like, you know, there's some recommendation, and they would say, you know, we can't tell people the exact truth, because then, you know, they won't trust Trust, Or we can't like, you know, everything makes sense about this, but we have to maintain trust in the process. And it seems like public health, what they were doing was they were doing this sort of pop psychology. They didn't have studies for their psychological assumptions. If we speed up the RNA vaccine, it will lead to anti-vax sentiment. That's one thing they would say no no studies no no research you know uh, said this um, and it sounds like they were doing the exact same thing with the race stuff they had a like a bureaucratic thing they wanted to do they just wanted to like make as uh you know as little work from possible as possible for themselves and then they sort of made up an ad hoc sort of psychological ex- pop psychological you know explanation of why that makes sense um and there was just no reason for it i mean it, it, isn't that what's going on here
1: sure you I mean, look there's a a, a, a e- even if you thought that for some reason it was scientifically important to have all the minority groups included, the thing to have done would have been to proceed and say, but you know, if you're worried, we haven't tested this in uh, enough Hispanics. If you are worried about that, uh, you could wait, but why deprive other people of it? But more generally, right, I mean, if you were someone like my elderly parents who have like heart conditions and that was especially vulnerable to COVID, your risk reward ratio is quite different than a 12, healthy 20 year old. And you might be saying, you know, I'm willing, I don't need the full study, right? If you have preliminary results that say that this will protect me, I'm willing to go with that. Just give me the data, let me make up my own mind rather than, you know, decide for me what you think is uh, in the societal interest. But we see that, and you know, as people, when I've written about this, people pointed out, it wasn't the point I made originally, people pointed out to me. uh, One of the oddities about the way they, do this uh, research is actually very similar to the diversity thing in higher education. So University of Michigan says we want diversity, but diversity is 13% African Americans, 8% Hispanics, and 1% American Indians, which happens to match the population of who applies to University of Michigan. But why would diverse? Why would be it be 13% for African Americans and 1% for American Indians if diversity was really the issue? Similarly with. Uh, vaccine trials or drug trials if you if you thought that race had scientific as we define it has scientific salience you want a statistically significant number of each group not oh, them not to have, you know not to have them match the population it doesn't make sense to say we want to make sure Asian, american indians are okay so we'll test 1% of them we want to make sure blacks are okay so we test make sure 14% of the subjects are black yeah. it just it, it it's just a random uh randomly matching the population <laughs> rather than any kind of scientific Rationale at all. So that, I mean, this is, this is especially disturbing to me, right? Because medicine is the one place, science is the one place where we hope for objective, uh, non-politicized decision making. But the government's been, cons- been encouraging, uh, politicized decision making and it's been seeping down into the medical community, into medical journals, such that, you know, there is a strong movement that we should that medicine should be racialized. That if we have a white patient and a black patient in the emergency room, that we should decide that, well, the black person has suffered more indignities and difficulties in life. So to compensate for that, we should take the black person over the white person, which is horrific. I mean, I, you know, the the whole doctors should be sworn to treat, you know, we we require the Jewish doctor to treat the dying Nazi, right? The Hippocratic Oath is because doctors must be blind to anything except medical need. That even may be a little bit too extreme for me, that one, but nevertheless, but to start having doctors decide for political or sociological reasons, I think this patient is more important in some way. Now, you could look at things like, well, we want to do outreach, for COVID vaccines and we know uh, people in the African-American community are more skeptical so we'll spend more money on outreach, that's okay. But to then say that we're going to give the vaccine to Africa, we're going to put them first in line. I mean, if you want to talk about the sort of thing then the long-term could cause racial hostility on a scale we haven't seen in this country for a long time, starting to prefer people based on their arbitrarily uh, decided race by the government, who gets medical treatment and who doesn't, And allowing you know, uh, I I would be I would refuse. I mean, if you told me my doctor was doing something like that, I would say this this person isn't fit to be in the medical profession. I want them to see me as a patient. I don't even want them to ask me about my race. Do a genetic test. That's cool. See what genetic issues I have that might affect how a weight loss treatment works for me or how a cancer drug. But the fact that I'm white shouldn't really have anything to do with anything.
0: Yeah. So, is your view? I mean, is your view? You're you're a um, you know you're you know libertarian leaning in your politics. You know, I mostly libertarian leaning too. Is is government particularly? It sounds so ridiculous. Is government particularly stupid in when it comes to racial classification, or is this like if you you know uh, turn over the rock, this is how sort of everything works, and it's all just stupid?
1: (laughs) I racial classifications in some sense are uh, stupid to begin with, in a sense that we uh, now, you know, to the, the only sense that they would make for most purposes is, is genetic, is with re- regard to genetics, but now we have genetic. So it could be a crude proxy for genetics, right? Because the, uh, you know, the average black person is going to be genetically different, more genetically different from a white person, than the average other white person, right? But that's really crude because even within Africa, Africa is actually the most genetically diverse continent because life Human, humans started there, so they had more time to evolve, uh, in Africa. So Africa is the most diverse. So it's much more, makes much more sense to look at genetics. Now, in the U.S., now, the problem with being completely race blind, as they are in countries like France, is you get into a situation where they refuse to discuss, uh, discrimination or against Arab immigrants, against, uh, hostility against Jews, but they won't keep the statistics, uh, because everyone just a Frenchman and they ignore social problems because of that. So that's also an issue. So it makes a certain amount of sense to do what the government tried to do initially, which is to find relatively crude uh, but somewhat useful ways of classifying people to monitor discrimination and to see if there are certain groups that are having certain social problems that may require some sort of intervention. The problem is that all these things wind up there's no such thing as like rational government policy that we just decide, here's how we use X and nothing else. It all will come down to politics. Once you set these classifications, interest groups will coalesce around these classifications and want stuff. And other groups will say, well, if they're getting stuff, then we want stuff. Or we'll say, well, if they're getting stuff, that's not fair. Take away their stuff. And you wind up with uh, with, 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 with race-based politics, essentially.
0: So is it so? Doesn't that say something for the French system that maybe you know that your choices are do you know you do it badly or you don't do it at all because you know if you start collecting this data, it's going to lead to you know calls for intervention and governments never going to do this stuff well. Yeah, I
1: mean the pro- one problem is that we have certain civil rights laws in the U.S. that have to be enforced. Uh, now you can argue that we don't really need uh, certain interpretations of the laws; wouldn't require. Uh, Collective data. Just we could go to individualized discrimination rather than look at disparities. But certain laws, like the Voting Rights Act, require the government to have the data to be able Mm. to enforce them. Uh, If you don't have the data, you can't enforce the law. So, so you either have to give up on enforcing certain kinds of anti-discrimination laws, which I don't think the country is prepared to do at this point, or you have to collect some data somehow, right? So, so there, so, so there is that issue. But you can collect certainly more finely tuned. Uh, data. Uh, You could not consider immigrants from Africa to be the same as the great-grandchildren of sharecroppers. You know, you certainly don't have to consider all Latin American immigrants to be of the same exact culture, race, and everything else when they have wide disparities in, in religion and how they look and what their uh, physiological background, anthropological background is. You'll, you certainly don't have to consider 60% of the world population from Pakistan all the way to the Philippines to be members of the same group. Uh, and you could also, one thing I suggest in the book is to the extent we want not just civil rights enforcement, but remediation, it would make a lot more sense to use what is at least arguably a non-racial classification. Say, you know what? American Indians who live on reservations, right? Not people who happen to be members of the Cherokee tribe, even though uh, the last person who is full-blooded Cherokee, lived in 1830, and they haven't lived on a reservation since then, and they look white and, you know, and are of white culture in every other way. People live on reservations. African Americans were descendants of slaves, not you know, Kamala Harris or uh, Barack Obama, but people who are actually descended, uh, who suffer from Jim Crow and so forth. Uh, we can remediate that based on political classifications. Descent from someone who has enslaved the United States resident of an Indian reservation, right? Uh, that would allow for remedial affirmative action without uh, it being essentially race-based. So if someone who's an immigrant from Africa, no, someone who's 164th, 64th, or even there, there's someone in the United States who's won 5,000, 284th, I believe it is, uh Cherokee, but who's a member of the Cherokee tribe? Okay, you're a member of the tribe, but they, we, we don't we, no one owes you anything based on that one great, 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 great grandparent. Um, so you could do that as well. I'm not saying you should, you whether you should or not is an, another another question. But you know, I think besides government being especially besides race classifications being especially arbitrary in many ways, race is an especially dangerous. Classification. It's true that we have other sorts of preferences in society based on, you know, let's say in college, based on geography, based on wealth. We don't normally have riots and massacres and genocides based on some certain other kinds of differences. Uh, religious differences and racial differences are the two ones that seem to cause actual violence and. I, you know, of a I have a, I have a massive level and societal disruptions. That's why in the book I eventually say, you know, maybe we should be considering, uh, with maybe a few exceptions, the separation of race and state. The way we've largely evolved, uh, uh evaded large scale religious conflict in the United States in a very religious country with very differing views on religious matters is through some sort, not a full separation, but a largely a separation of church and state, and maybe separating race and state would similarly allow people to identify how they want celebrate their own culture, form their own cultural groups, but not have the government be doling out things one way or the other based on your racial heritage.
0: Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's basically, that's the, um, that's the uh, sort of uh, the uh, originalist, um, textualist, you know, interpretation of, you know, four, 14th Amendment, right? I think that's, that's basically what you would get. It's, it's not a uh, radical idea. That's something we could get, court, you know, court cases, uh, you know, saying stuff like this, right?
1: Yeah, and I I think one of the interesting things that I found in writing the book is when I started writing the book, I felt, you know, people on the right uh, or libertarians or whatever may really like this book. People on the left are going to hate it. And the reason they're going to hate it is that even though the book is not about affirmative action, it does call into question some of the underlying assumptions of affirmative action about how we classify people. And I think the since affirmative action is fairly unpopular in the country and is always under threat, they feel like any... Attack on affirmative action, even indirect, uh, any weakening, uh, you may, may collapse the whole house. But interestingly enough, since I started the book, I mentioned earlier, there's this question: Well, should white his, should white Cuban Americans who are sort of culturally similar to their. Uh, Italian, Jewish, German, whatever descended neighbors in South Florida. Should they really be considered a minority group? And maybe we should get rid of this whole idea of people of color. Maybe because after all, African Americans and Native Americans have a really different history than, uh, other than other than immigrant groups since 1965. But we should so we should call it BIPOC instead. You know, Black Indigenous either. And people who are people of color, or and people of color, or people of color, but Black Indigenous are really the key, and the others aren't as significant. And maybe for that matter, we shouldn't refer uh, to African Americans as one single group anymore. Maybe we should separate out uh, ADOs, American descendants of slaves, from African immigrants and Jamaican and Caribbean immigrants who are taking up a good percentage of the affirmative action slots in universities and elsewhere. Now, after all, they didn't suffer from Jim Crow and slavery in the United States. They're taking compensation or remediation that belongs to us. So this has actually become a really live issue on the left as well. So I'm hopeful that even people who aren't you know, against affirmative action or uh, think that government needs to be race neutral will consider the just the arbitrariness of our government of our current classifications and whether uh,
0: there's a better way of doing things. Yeah, uh, you know, but ma- you know, it's maybe the you know the left. You know, it seems it seems to make perfect sense, even from a left-wing perspective, that you want to single out the American descendants of slaves. Um, the thing is, you know, I, I, but maybe, you know, I think that maybe they are, you know, being rational. I think that if you critique this thing at all, the whole house of cards will collapse because you have these multiple dangers. You have public opinion, which, you know, once you start being, I think the strength of the affirmative action, the race classification system is it's, it's so vague. We don't really say we're giving people's preferences. We just say, you know, we're having, we care about diversity. Um, You know, we don't say, you know, uh, uh, quota, we say there's a disparate impact. You can't have a, you know, a test that has two groups. So it's, you know, this stuff is so unpopular that you need these games to be able to get away with it, and for institutions to do these things, and once you start making explicit what you're going, okay, group X, you're going to get Y preference, you're going to get you know a certain amount of points, and you're going to give it for exactly this justification, not some you know some uh, vague you know th- thing, general diversity. Um, you know, it's actually a retru- redistributionist uh, model aimed at specific people for specific reasons. Um, you know, the conservative justices just find it easier to throw that out. Public opinion finds it easier to just, you know, vote against that. And then the whole thing collapses. You don't get racial preferences at all. I think there was a, a, a liberal writer, Jonathan Scheid, who said something like this. You know, the affirmative action system is irrational, but the, but the alternative is not, you know, some kind of thing in the middle. The alternative is is no affirmative action, no race-based uh, policy. So is, is that sort of, is it, might that be a dilemma that, you know, liberals face?
1: Sure, and I think uh, their initial instinct of including Hispanics and Asians in a lot of these programs was to have a broader coalition so that it would be easier politically than, oh, we're not just helping African Americans, we're helping all minority groups, they have a bigger coalition, there's diversity aspect to it, and so forth. But the difficulty becomes that at some point, if the vast majority of people are getting government contracts for affirmative action or not, uh, African American at all, and that was the intent. Uh, was to have out, was to help African Americans. And if, for example, in colleges, especially at the most elite schools, you know, there was a study. Uh, it was almost twenty years ago already that at Harvard University, of the black undergraduates, two thirds were just either immigrants of the children of immigrants, or had one white parent. And this is also becoming an issue that uh, people with one white parent, with one African-American parent, uh, tend to do much better in a variety of metrics than African-Americans themselves. But of course, they have the advantage of having a white parent. So at some point, if your goal was to uh, especially aid African-Americans and maybe, you know, the sort of American Indians who live on poor reservations and are isolated. And it turns out the people who are being helped are almost entirely post 1965 immigrants of all races. Uh, and not the people you help you. Okay. You're fighting to preserve this. But what are you fighting to preserve? You're fighting to preserve. Arbitrary benefits from people who did not suffer uh, historical discrimination in the United States, and then the only reason you're doing it is because you think these people will still be your political allies. Uh, and it's true that and that's maybe true to some extent because they do still tend to vote on the liberal side, which is where the activists lie. On the other hand, you see that with issues. I mean, the people who are. I think one, you know, one reason I think that Hispanics uh, have been changing their voting patterns is they is that they were. Upset with the uh, riots in 2020 uh, and that the media sort of didn't really cover, but there was massive destruction in cities across the country. And many of the neighborhoods that were under attack, the small businesses were owned by Hispanic immigrants. And the police said, Oh, sorry, Black Lives Matter. We, we shouldn't injure, we They're mad at us. We can't come and, and, and protect you. And crime rates have shut up in uh, throughout the country and so forth. And they're, and you know, a lot of African Americans themselves aren't, aren't, uh, Interested in the woke agenda, but yeah, there is still a certain amount of solidarity within the African American community for obvious historical and current reasons. But Hispanic, you know, Hispanic immigrants like, well, this is ridiculous. We want, we want, we need law. We 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 can't abide the 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 absence of law and order in these neighborhoods, in our in the neighborhoods that we're building up in these cities.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If I was going to guess and say sort of what's the what's the motivation for, you know, still wanting affirmative action, even if it doesn't go to uh, uh, a as you call them, American descendants of slaves. I think it's I think it's an aesthetic preference. I think they get I think there's a lot of people, maybe not just liberals, but, you know, some moderates and conservatives, too. They see leadership in the country. It's, it's too many white faces. It's just scary. They don't care where those black faces come from. They don't care what they've been through. Just give me some dark faces to go right. in there, and I feel. Well, although, I feel
1: although, although again, you know, we have to remember that you know the way. Who is one of the you know? So we could have someone like um, uh, the Secretary of Defense, whose name I'm blanking on. Lloyd Austin. It? Uh, no, it was what? oh, maybe uh, I'm Mark
0: I'm, Esper. Uh, Esper, the Lebanese guy, for with Trump.
1: I'm, no, I'm thinking of the guy now he's like an Argentine Jew or something for Ashkenazi Jew, but he was also Cuban, Miarcus.
0: Oh uh, yeah, yeah. The, uh, so, uh, so, so he's trumping
1: um, is like the first Latin American, whatever. You uh, see the secretary? I, I should know who's the secretary. Blinken's secretary. of State. He's secretary of yeah, the, uh,
0: the Department of Homeland Security.
1: Oh, Homeland Security. There we go. Sorry, I, I you know I I, I uh, as a libertarian I try not to
0: risk <laughs> to know their names. Yeah,
1: uh, yeah. I try not to, to pay too much attention to this stuff. But anyway, uh, so he was he was the first you know. Hispanic, whatever. But meanwhile, but yeah, but then in the Trump administration they had two half Lebanese is uh S S S Esper and also Alex Azar, who was actually to be my law school classmate, whose dad is Lebanese, uh identifies as Lebanese. He wears actually the ring from of his Christian Lebanese uh uh ancestor who was like the prince of whatever little principality before the Ottomans drove them out. Uh and you know, so he's Lebanese, yeah, But they're but they're just sort of arbitrarily displayed deemed by whoever to be white and, uh, and, and uh, Myorkis, who's deemed arbitrarily to somehow be a minority. So yes, there's an aesthetic preference, but it's this weird aesthetic preference, but we arbitrarily decide... No, but they don't,
0: they don't care. If, Mar- Marcos, if Marcos or Esper went away, they don't care. It's it's blacks they care about. I mean, they want to see some some dark face. You know, you'll get close enough. You'll get some people who look, you know, could pass for white, but you have some black people, and then you have some people who are ambiguous, and, you know, everyone's comfortable. That's what they want. They want the, just the, that that comfort. It's like a commercial, where you have, you know, two white people and a black person. <laughs> you just Feel uncomfortable. Like, okay, you don't care Well, right. I mean, look.
1: I mean, I think there's. I actually, you know, I've thought about this for a long time, and I, you know, uh, I, I'm very uncomfortable with any sort of race preference, but I have some sympathy with the notion that, with regard to African Americans in particular, decreasingly so, but still, that there has historically been, and still to some extent, there's sufficient social isolation that powerful institutions to some extent should have someone black there uh, to be saying, Hey, you're neglect, like, you know, you're not thinking about us as fully as full citizens. You don't really interact with us. Here's how this is going to affect our community that you're not aware of. Right. Because for the, I mean, it's, again, it's changing, but you know, as recently as like 30 years ago, let's say, there was almost no interracial marriage between blacks and whites in the United States, you know, 5% or something for blacks, which made it even lower for whites too. And there was a lot of residential segregation." And I don't think universities are doing anyone any favors by actually furthering segregation uh, intentionally, having separate graduations and separate uh, <laughs> dorms and all that. But there's, there's still, there is this segregation where you can imagine that, hey, we want to have a place at the table to point out things that you might not be aware of because you don't socially interact uh, with people like us so much. I, I think there there, there is uh, 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 something to that. But, you know, the less isolated the group is, the less... Uh, Sergey, they are the less they the, the less likely they are the, the more likely they are to have uh, relatives and friends of different groups. The less likely there's any particular reason why they should have representation uh, specifically in uh, in uh, in elite circles. Uh, there's no particular reason why, like if you're in Florida, that. Uh, a Cuban-American has to be in the cabinet in Florida. Cuban-Americans are a politically powerful group. They uh, have a lot of uh, uh, authority in both parties. Uh, They're more Republicans, but a lot of them are also Democrats and not socially isolated. Uh, They intermarry at high rates. Uh, So, you know, it's... It, it's not. You don't want to. You certainly don't want to exclude people. That's nice to have different perspectives. But why would it be more important to have, say, a Cuban American from Florida than someone who and someone who grew up in a trailer park, you know, in an in isolated rural neighborhood uh, in in South in Florida somewhere? Right. Those people are really don't get much representation. No one really thinks about them very much.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think you're more optimistic about than I am about being able to sort of have this middle ground. Like you have, the even if blacks are socially isolated, to have a person there who speaks for the black community, how do you stop that from turning into a, a grift? Um, how do you stop that from just you know that person being a you know a, you know having a political agenda? Like who's you know who's to say that he actually represents uh, the views no, of the I mean, majority or what's good for that group? Like I
1: said, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. Uh, with it a variety of levels but i i i think it's a, I see the logic of the argument is, is, is as far as I'm not I'm not going like to endorse it or not endorse it i'm just going to say i can see the logic of saying that there's been a group that's been sort of the outgroup you know, I, it, similarly, one could imagine, you know, in India saying, yeah, you know, um, maybe we shouldn't have all Brahmins uh, running the university. right? We have to, we should, we should make sure we have an untouchable, I don't, I don't know all the cast of India, but, you know, it, so to the extent, so the only, the only two groups, I think, in the United States that we could fairly say were subject to a caste system historically where Native Americans on reservations and African Americans. And of course the caste system uh, in both regards has been declining and over time, and maybe it's too late to really remediate it in any meaningful way. But again, again, I can see the logic of saying that those groups uh, uh, we want them to have some sort of representation, but not to sort of arbitrarily pick out uh, people. Oh, your ancestors spoke Spanish. So that, so therefore, like, well, well, what about the people whose answers spoke Greek or Arabic or German or any, or, or Polish or Armenian or any other language? Why, why arbitrarily do we decide that Latinos are the only uh, ethnic group that uh, need representation?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that mean, they they, you know, they, uh you know, Tom Sowell has written about the uh, affirmative action for, uh, casts in, in India and uh, yeah I mean it sort of supports the idea that you know it's, it's there's no way to do this well because it's it's just as big of a mess as as ours is and so you know there might be just a tendency here that you know you have to sort of you sort of have to you know choose one thing or 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 the other
1: yeah um, all the re- all the research on affirmative action throughout the world suggests that never. Decline. They never. They never. Yeah. It never gets smaller. They always expand for obvious political reasons. Like I yeah. said, once one group gets stuff, other groups uh, yeah. want it. So, so that's I'm the argument
0: for that. just just killing it. I mean, that's the right. argument for you. Just
1: you so, so I'm arguing that would be uh, that would be okay in my view to have a middle ground where we use non racial proxies for what for like you know for a certain kinds of certain groups of African Americans or Native Americans. But the point that perhaps. You know, it's inevitable that once you have anything like this, once you deviate from strict equal protection where government cannot classify anybody by anything and give them a preference, that it's inevitably going to decline into a war, a political war of all against all. I mean, that's a fair point. I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue that that that's not a,
0: a potentially valid critique. Yeah, and speaking of Native Americans, we didn't even get to the uh, the part of your book about the um, uh, you know the, the 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 children of Native American descent. I mean, the the laws here that basically if a kid has some this is amazing if a kid has a, some Native American ancestor, the government just sometimes just will swoop in and take them and put them into like these you know the, the tribal system, even if they've been adopted, even if the other parent doesn't care. You just talk a, you know this will be the last thing we talk about. You talk a little bit about the, uh, sort of uh, this stuff because this this chapter of your book just blew me away.
1: Yeah, so this is this is an example of a government policy that was well intentioned that went to hell pretty quickly. So there's a history in the United States and in Canada also of the government being sort of insensitive, to say the least, to uh, the mores of local uh, indigenous communities. And at the first sign of any sort of trouble in the family, they would be much more likely to ship the kids off to foster care or a boarding school because they're they're. Uh, idea was, well, they're in backwards communities anyway, so we'll be better off. And yeah, this was obviously uh, grossly unfair uh, to to Native Americans to be treated uh, in this matter, to have their kids much, you know, so much more likely to be taken away under similar circumstances than say white kids were. So Congress passed a law in 1976 trying to remediate this and saying basically that if you have uh, one parent who is a member of and the american tribe before they could be adopted or otherwise have the judicial system do anything with them you first have to ask their tribe whether uh they want custody of the child uh before you could give it to say a white parent to adopt or um or otherwise you or if they, and this is really the crazy part or if you say the child has a Cherokee parent if the Cherokee tribe says no it's fine let the white parent adopt any other tribe could then adopt the child could then take custody of the child, and this is a pure, this is pure race discrimination, right? This is like saying, "Oh, well, if you're an Icelandic child and Icelandic family doesn't want you, well, a Turkish family could take you because it's the same thing, right?" I mean, they're, they're all Indians, like just like these are all Europeans, but they have nothing to do with one another, uh, and they're often enemies historically. In fact, some of these tribes, uh, and uh, a more limited law that said, you know, if both parents. Uh, are members and retain cultural connections that the tribe as some say might have been plausible on the political grounds that the tribes are, you know, have their own autonomy and so forth, and these are citizens of the tribes. But just for example, if the first of all, the parents could have intentionally tried to break off any ties with the tribe, don't want the tribe involved, so why would the tribal rights go ahead of the parental rights? But also, tribal membership could be inherited because, like I said, you could have distant ancestry of inherited memberships. So you could have a situation, there was a case like this, in fact, where one parent is one 256th member of a certain tribe, the other parent is of European descent, and somehow the tribe gets to decide where the child goes. So the first question is, well, why is the white parent's... Uh, ethnicity or heritage get downplayed compared to the Indians, but then also, while they're two hundred fifty-six Native American, they're not really you know they they've inherited this citizenship, but um, they have nothing to do. You know they don't live there, they don't they don't have connections there. Why would that be the the main factor rather than a normal factor of best interest of the tribe? So basically, uh, what we have is such a situation was where the corporate interests of the tribe in retaining as many Indian members, as they can for political reasons, overcomes dramatically, not just a little bit, but dramatically what would otherwise be considered the best interests of the child and also the the parents' own wishes. And that is just really, it really is horrific. I mean, there are these horrific cases where you know a kid was fostered by a white mom who had an Indian boyfriend the whole time. The kid has no. Cultural ties to the tribe isn't a member of the tribe himself. Only his, only one parent is living with the parents. The, the white foster parents for two and a half years. White foster parents want to adopt him, and the tribe swoops in, intervenes, and takes the kid away. And it's just, you know, it's just really horrific stuff. Again, well intentioned initially, but the the crazy thing to me is that most law professors who teach Indian law are completely, you know. Um, Captured by the woke a woke agenda on this. I'm not sure why this is woke, but it is. And said, oh, no!" He says, "Of course, we should give the tribe the rights here. Not the kids should just become Indian." I don't really get that.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's a yeah, it's a, absolutely wild. I mean, it was unbelievable stuff. So I recommend people read that read that chapter and read the whole book, of course. Um, is there any you know before I let you go, David? Is there any uh, you know books, articles um, on racial classification, American government policy that you would particularly recommend? Um. That's
1: a good question. Uh, there are a couple of books. Um, there's, a, there's a guy named John Scrantney, who's a sociologist at the University of California. I, I think uh, his work uh, in this area is pretty good. It's more from a sociological perspective. Um, most of the work is disappointing. You mentioned the book Making Hispanics uh, by Professor Mora. That's a good book. I'll mention the name of my book again, because I think we've actually said it for a while, Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification uh, in America. Um I you mentioned Thomas Sowell before. I think Sowell is um, you know sort of my guru uh, in the sense that uh, he understands both the arbitrariness of many of the classifications we use, but also that once we use these classifications, there's no society in human history where we have exact et- horizontal equity between all groups that different groups for whatever reasons have different uh wind up doing differently, educationally, economically, socioeconomically. They have different cultures and they have different levels of success. And uh, this idea that we should that, you know, which which I think is behind all of this and is very popular now with, with uh, some of the intersectional uh, theorists that everyone would be exactly equal group-wise if we only had the government intervene pro- if the government If there's no discrimination, the government intervene properly is just nonsense. First of all, you know, you'll never get No society in history has that level of equality, but also how you... Classify people lines up. Okay, so when you say all groups should be even, do we divide Native Americans? Do we consider them all as one, or do we then say, well, the Cherokee also have to be exactly equal to the Hopi? And for even for white, yeah, you know, one thing we haven't discussed: whites are not a homogeneous group either. Uh, you know, Iceland, Americans of Icelandic descent will inevitably have different cultural, economic, etc. attributes than you know Pol, Polish immigrants or Armenian immigrants or Greeks and their and their descendants, and so. So forth. Um, so, I guess the long and the short of it is that uh, is, is that we have you know basically arbitrary classifications, arbitrarily defined, arbitrarily conceived of, that in a lot of ways uh, do a disservice to the public, but also are extremely dangerous politically because they're exactly the sort of things that lead to uh, civil wars. Uh, when we divide people up this way, there is a lot of hope based on how people actually behave as opposed to how the government wants them to, that we're moving to a, uh, a, a uniracial society where everyone will just be mutt, mutt randomly uh, mixed Americans. And that's uh, my hope for the future. Uh, and one way of helping to get there would be to have a separation of race and state.
0: Thanks for being here, David. I enjoyed it.
1: Uh, thanks so much for having me.